Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Innovate MR is an independent sampling and res tech company delivering faster answers from targeted audiences to support agile research. Innovate MR also develops forward-thinking products, empowering businesses to create data-driven strategies and identify growth opportunities. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy back with another edition of the Greenbook Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share it with us. And today we are going to be talking about the topic of inclusivity. And we have three great folks that are deeply engaged in this conversation. I will let them introduce themselves as I call them out. So first we have Tim Cornelius, a Green Book List honoree for 2022, Director of Operations at Question Pro and the CEO of P3 Technology. Tim, you want to tell the tell our listeners a little bit about you real quick? Hey, Tim Cornelius, as Lenny said, I'm the Director of Operations at Question Pro and the CEO of P3 Technology. I am a advocate for accessibility and market research and believe that no one should be left out. I'm sure I'll touch on that a little more in the podcast, but really glad to be here. Born New Orleanian and happy to represent Question Pro and P3 on the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Now, I, I, I'm surprised by being a born Dorlinian. I don't hear that Cajun accent. Maybe that'll come out a little bit more as we're, uh, as we're talking. Next, we have uh, Keanu Osborne, Senior Research Manager at Accelerate, a Smith Geiger company. Kiana, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. As Lenny said, my name is Kiana Osborne Pennell. And I have been in the market research industry for about 10 years now. And it's not until I got into the industry that I would say I became passionate about and an advocate for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, belonging. And so that is something that I am so passionate about and would love to help the market research industry continue to change and lead in that space. I am actually not a native Southerner, but living in Charlotte, North Carolina right now, originally from New Jersey, and looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Welcome. Good to have another two Southerners <laughs> on the podcast. That's rare. And then Lila Rayner, CEO of Logica Research. Lila, great to uh, have you on. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks so much, Lenny. I'm super happy to be here. I have had Logica Research for about 15 years, and prior to that, I managed research at Charles Schwab. And uh, starting last year, I became involved in the Insights Association Idea Council and specifically around doing research on inclusivity. And I came to that just from my own background and also our focus on financial inclusion at Logica Research and having financial wellness for all. So excited to talk about some of the work the Ideal Council has done around asking more inclusive questions in marketing research and helping bring all voices to marketing research. Thank you. Now, for our listeners, I want to kind of set the tone here from kind of the uh, macro research perspective. When I think about the topic of in inclusivity, what I think about is representativity. And it is foundational to successful research, right? If we don't have representative samples, if we're not reaching the populations that we need to reach for whatever reason, then we have a problem. And I would venture to say that we have a problem within the industry right now that's driven by multiple issues. Some are age, some are economic, some are cultural, some are racial. But I think that we have a real challenge right now with ensuring that our samples are inclusive and representative along many, many different factors. Uh, and I think we've had it for a long time, but I think it's getting worse. And we're seeing that reflected in the supply problems within sample. We are seeing it represented in bias that is now becoming more and more apparent in uh, some aspects of research and it's a systemic issue. 
And by that, I don't mean that I think it's purposeful. I don't think it's anything like that. I think we just haven't evolved in our thinking as an industry to ensure that we are engaging with everybody the way they need to be engaged with versus the way we think they should be engaged with. We get so operationally focused and, you know, we're, we're making money. That makes sense. We, we have to create efficiencies in the process, but I think we're leaving a lot on the table and it's starting to be a challenge. So that's my Uber perspective. First, does anybody disagree with that? Feel free to chime in. I see everybody's nodding, going, nope, you got it. You got it. So that's good. Now, each of you have an area of expertise in those or, or an area of focus within that broad piece. So, you know, there's lots of acronyms covering these initiatives from, you know, DI or DEI, DEIB. Let's go around and get your unique perspective on what this topic of inclusivity means and what's included in it. So, Kiana, why don't we start with you? Uh, give us your take. Sure thing. I couldn't agree more with what you were saying, <laughs> Lenny. We definitely have a problem in the market research industry. I've read some articles and studied different leaders' literature in this space, and there seems to be a divide of do we really need all the letters and do we need to keep adding <laughs> letters um, or can we just stick with what was originally there? I think for me personally, the two letters that are most important to me are equity and inclusion. I think equity means that everybody is starting from a place that gives them an equal chance to reach the finish line, not necessarily the same place, but a place that gives them an equal chance and inclusion makes sure that they're actually seen and heard and a part of what's going on. I definitely think that because everyone has a different perception of what each letter means, we've needed to add the letter A for accessibility and make sure that we're talking about people with different types of abilities and belonging, because even if you're included, you may not feel <laughs> like you actually belong in that space. And so making sure that ultimately we have a space that is enjoyable for everyone there and where everyone feels like they can succeed uh, at a similar pace or at a similar rate to everyone else in the room. Okay. And, you know, I would translate that being an old, old fart in the, the research industry, that that's the basis of random probability sampling, right? You know, is everybody equally gets a chance to participate in the research process. And that's the gold standard of market research. So there's nothing in that. And I understand that there's some, you know, cultural sensitivities to some of these things or whatever and all that controversy and don't care, right? Put all that aside. We are, to echo what you were saying, we are talking about the foundation of research of good sampling. Everybody starts from the same place and gets a chance to participate without excluding them. So, yeah, I see Absolutely. you nodding. and <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It seems that the market research industry, all of us need to just go back to the basics. <laughs> so I like that you took us there. Okay. Yay. I did something good. All right. Now, Tim, so I know you've got a slightly different take on this based on your own focus uh, as you introduced yourself. So what would you add to that that definition or share a little bit about your perspective? Sure. So as a researcher, for years, I was disqualifying people due to disabilities, and I did not know that I was doing that. My aha moment came after I had a respondent that I had profiled with about 10 demographic qualifications, and that respondent was kicked out. Her name was Ariel. She's a mother of two, 36 years old. Head of the household, gig worker, checked all the boxes, but she was born deaf. I had not considered that. We had a pilot sitcom video with audio that had no closed captions and no way to go back, no way to interact with the video. So when I put up a red herring question after the video to see if they were paying attention, she literally could not pass that there's a very strong chance that she was not going to hit the right answer. So I chatted with her and, and was like, hey, you know, you were the perfect participant. What happened here? 
And so I asked her about her life. We chatted all night. She was 15 minutes late to pick up her kids. Just really strung all of my heartstrings. And it got me to thinking about, you know, who else is left out of the space? So the most important letter to me on that is inclusion. And a subset of that is accessibility. I would say that the people that are making the surveys there's a large chance that they are not disabled. And if you do not have disability representation at the very beginning of your ideation phase, you're not going to be inclusive. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says that only 19.1% of people with a disability have any employment. So you're likely not going to get any feedback on your survey design or your uh, sampling methodology from someone who has a disability. So I would say the, the, the most important thing to me and what I focus and what my North Star is, accessible content, accessible surveys. Disabled people make up uh, about one in four people in the United States. So let's start from an equal ground. Uh, let's all start at the same yard line instead of 75% being out way ahead to start. I love that too. Uh, and for those that don't know, I have a neurodegenerative disease that compromises my mobility to a great extent. And the thought of not being able to participate in anything, frankly, pisses me off. And if we get to the point where that's a challenge to participate in some levels of research, not that I would qualify because I am in the research industry, that would frustrate me immensely as well. So for our listeners and for you, I've got a personal connection to that idea as well. Right. There's nothing wrong with my brain. There's just things wrong with my body. Right. And uh, and I spend money like a drunken sailor. So, you know, everybody should be <laughs> we should be paying attention to those things, even if there are challenges with our respondents in terms of the ability to engage with it, it, it's a form factor issue, I think. And we certainly should be able to solve for that. Now, Lila, you and I have worked in the past on some studies around finance and particularly we, gosh, what was it, five or six years ago that we did a project on uh, on incentives and the future of money and what was driving particularly millennials and Gen Z to engage. And I know that you've done a lot more research around that. So I suspect that your perspective on this is around economic inclusion and thinking about the different plays that we have to, the different ways we have to evolve to make sure that we're, we're representing folks at different economic uh, levels. Is that, sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. I realized I just did it. I was going, so you tell us instead of me trying to put words in your mouth, please. Yeah. Well, um, that certainly is a, a starting point for me since we focus on financial services and my own personal you know, interest and purpose is around financial inclusion. And what's Interesting, you know, I would say I, I do focus on the I. Um, what I like about the name of the I Idea Council and, and uh, gives me a chance to hedge is it stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. And I think is an optimistic perspective as well. But I do focus on inclusion, but I think to have <laughs> inclusive voices, you need to have the diversity, the equity, and the access too. So you can't really have inclusion without those things. And uh, it's really interesting. I've been doing a bunch of qualitative interviews and we are talking to such a diverse group of people and we weren't recruiting on race and ethnicity. We were recruiting on a bunch of other variables. But when we did that, we got a very diverse group of people on gender and race and ethnicity as well. And such a diverse set of perspectives on financial services and wealth building. So it's been really interesting when you open up the door and you can recruit nationally for virtual and qualitative. It's been pretty different. There's a lot of work still to be done, especially on panel sample and, and surveys and how we screen for sure. So are we seeing, Lila, I want to play off what you, you just said and thinking about the research we did together years ago. And how we teed things up that we are we are not engaging with a representative sample simply because we don't have the right tools or approaches to engage with them. 
are you finding that in the work that you do across the board in Logica that there's a possibly a fundamental flaw in the research process where I'll just hypothesis would be uh, you know millennials or or Gen Z are just saying why the hell why would I do this you know I don't participate in research because we're not giving them the appropriate incentive not necessarily monetary incentive but the 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 inappropriate reason to participate is that something that you see that's interesting i think there's probably room to look at monetary incentives but i actually think that the incentives that we have are working in a lot of ways to get gen zers and millennials to participate but i think there's probably research that needs to be done to figure out what the right incentives are And what I will say about the younger generation, which may not have changed too much, is that they're looking at all kinds of promotions, and that's in research, and that's in financial services. And with COVID, the pandemic, and the economic situation, incentives and promotions, monetary promotions, are really appealing to the younger generation. And they are figuring out pretty clever ways to work it. Um, or to make it work for them. So I think we do need to look at it as an industry and figure out what's going to incentivize different groups of people and attract different people to participate in research for sure. Well, let's broaden that out then as well. So not just kind of the generational financial piece, but what are your perspectives on what we need to do as an industry to engage populations that possibly are not currently being represented in our samples and is that yeah well well, let's leave it at that is there something else that we need to be doing so kiana what's uh what's your thoughts on that so i i happen to be a millennial and (laughs) by marriage i have stepkids who are gen zers (laughs) so i have thought about this for my own self And then just as a market researcher, thinking about all perspectives and then had some conversations recently with a 16 and 17 year old. And it seems like some of the stereotype and what the two generations are known for is this access to knowledge. And a lot of what I'm seeing is that there's just a desire for there to be an exchange of that knowledge. So hey, researcher, you want to ask me questions. I'll give you those answers, but I want to know how you're using them. I want to know how my answers impacted the way you market, the way you created your product, the way you created packaging, whatever it is. And so I feel like that's a lot of what the incentivization needs to be. Companies, if they're able to be open to (laughs) this exchange of information, can provide a little bit of insight to these uh, respondents and incentivize them in a way that, you know, makes them brand ambassadors and makes them people who are willing to talk about this brand because they know that they almost feel like they're an employee (laughs) or feel like their voice is being heard. So that would be one approach that comes to mind for me is figuring out how we can make the exchange of information a bit more mutual rather than asking millennials and Gen Zers for information and then, you know, saying thank you and giving money that they may or may not need. Is there any difference in that perspective? So we're talking about kind of the generational age thing. And Tim, I'll follow up with you in just a second on this. Is there any difference in approach that we need to be factoring in based on race or ethnicity? I do think so. I think some of it comes into play with the socioeconomic status that you touched on a bit with Lila. From, you know, going back to the basics again, we can think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So if we're trying to reach people who don't know what they're going to eat for dinner, then they're not going to be very interested in responding to our survey, especially if that survey doesn't help them get food for dinner. (laughs) So I think there's definitely a different approach that needs to come for people who may be of a lower socioeconomic status. Those people tend to be people of color. I am black. And so I have seen that and have lived experience with that. And so I think that's probably one of the first considerations we need to make as researchers when thinking about people 
of different racial or ethnic backgrounds. Language spoken at the house comes to mind as well. Different cultural (laughs) identities and cultural practices that may be important to white American culture, but not to other cultures should be considered as well. But I think the first thing that comes to mind is what you and Lila already touched on with that socioeconomic status and being conscious of what's important to your respondent. Innovate MR has recently appointed market research leader Kristen Luck to the board of directors and has garnered significant investment from civic partners. With this, the team has entered a new era of exponential growth, expanding their ability to help brands around the world make data-driven decisions. The team has created the Vision Suite, a Stevie Award-winning ResTech platform offering researchers a comprehensive collection of next-generation products enabling survey design, sample procurement, fraud mitigation, reporting, and do-it-together team support. I have never thought of sampling from the perspective of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That is a very <laughs> cool. We could go on about that. I, we, we, we may have to circle back at some point on that. That is a very cool idea. Let's do another episode. <laughs> but we may, absolutely, because that's, that's a really cool idea. I've been harping on this for, gosh, my entire career that we have to, we have to think like marketers, but act like researchers and think about marketers from the standpoint of engagement, right? We have an engagement problem. We're very transactional, we're very commoditized, we're very structured. We need to talk to people the way they want to be talked to, but I never framed it up that way. So that's very cool. All right, Tim, so from an accessibility perspective, because I know that's one of the areas that you focus on, and I know Question Pro has led the forefront of Novavec for years in kind of pioneering different approaches to engage research. They're one of the early uh, mobile uh, platforms, et cetera, et cetera. What are the form factor aspects that we need to deal with and think through technologically in order to address accessibility challenges as well? So it's one thing to be legally compliant and play nice across the board from a technological standpoint, from a GDPR perspective. You know, those are the minimum boxes that you have to check to send out surveys. What you aren't considering is the different color contrasts for someone who is colorblind, what it looks like at 400 times zoom when you're on mobile versus a tablet versus a desktop device auto defaulting to auto advance after answering a question that helps with upper limb mobility issues. So I was uh, auditing an app the other day with someone who uh, was a disabled veteran and they had upper limb mobility issues. And you know, all the apps seemed to swipe. And that was really tough. So because that's so common, You know, this person was commonly left out. So they should be able to navigate through a system by saying just left or right movements, interacting, whether that's with a a blow tube or a joystick or keyboard only. But I think that there's just further considerations that, you know, I haven't even uncovered yet. So with the deaf community, I find that you know, the easiest and one of the best inventions for them and where they live is on Twitter because it's all written out. It's succinct like the language is, ASL is at least, and you're able to get your point out really quickly. And a lot of times deaf people will get frustrated because they have to put in so much more work to express how they're feeling and move around and things. But that's, you know, that's not the opinion that's that everyone has. So I would say make sure your surveys are compliant by the ADA, but also go a step further and make sure someone's doing a blind spot analysis. I will say that I audited the ADA website and they broke their own rules 164 times on the homepage. So it's really hard for us to look in the mirror and say, man, we're not accessible. Well, neither is the person who's gaining the accessibility putting that up. And the EU equivalent was 
just as bad. So from that as a starting point, let's make our own rules and let's do better than the ADA. Okay. So I agree with everything you just said. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute, more from a business standpoint. So all of you spoke at IEX. I think all of you have spoken at IEX at some point. And the rule of thumb is we use PowerPoint for presentations because it's the lowest common denominator, right? So in building scalable architecture, you know, scalable businesses, you automatically gravitate towards the mass, towards the majority, and so that it, it can just scale. That's just the part of scaling the business. So if I'm building software, I'm thinking about the majority of people are going to use this, which would probably fall within the spectrum of normal abilities. And my thinking would be that if someone is differently abled, that it is on them to use some other technology that could plug in to their device to help them participate. Now, I'm not saying that that's right. So please be be clear. I'm not saying, oh, you, you know, everybody has a disability. You're on your own. That's not what I mean. But there's a tension from a commercial perspective, right, in building businesses that is probably a, one of the challenges that we have to get through here. And is it the, we'll, we'll just use Question Pro as an example. Is it Question Pro's responsibility to ensure that they have uh, text-to-speech embedded into every survey? Or is it the respondent's responsibility to ensure they have a plug-in that converts text-to-speech? You know, just as, as one example. Uh, is it Question Pro's responsibility to change the design of a survey for folks that can't swipe? Or is it the respondent's responsibility to have some other type of device they can use to navigate? I don't know the answer to that. I'm just curious on the panel as a whole. Let's take it up a level. What is the responsibility for the research industry to adapt to challenges that may be a very small percentage of the population that are barriers to entry? Let's play with that. So, Tim, since I picked on you, why don't you respond to that and then we'll go around real quick. So I love this question and it really gets you thinking. So you said build a product. I'm thinking, I know there has to be a point at which financial consideration has to be made. You can't do everything for everyone. But if we're talking about one in four people that can't access your website due to a disability, you're missing out on a fourth of the market. I think as a free market, people should not use those solutions. If you're not catering to the respondent experience, then you should be left behind. Disabled people have $490 billion per year of discretionary income. They're able to be advocates of your product. They will tell their friends about your product. And you'll have at least 25% of the market already available to use your product over another product. And when where you can. I can tell you it is a whole lot less expensive to be accessible up front than to have us come in and audit your design midway through because you got sued because you were inaccessible. So I would recommend to have a successful product that you are accessible as much as you can be and work with, work with the different groups of people that you want to get influence from. Uh, and and Kiona was really, really smart with uh, the hierarchy of needs and uh, meeting the people where they are. But these individuals really care about the social impact that they're making with helping out design. So user research is incredibly powerful in the beginning stages. So I would say a low dollar way to do it at the beginning is to involve those people from the start. If you can't, get a good lawyer. <laughs> All right. So thank you. I appreciate you reframed what I was trying to get to. Now is the business case. Why does this matter? We talked about the representativity you know, component of things, but now the business case. So Lila, can you build on that with 
kind of where Tim was of what, what's the business case for why we need to pay attention to this, why this is an important topic? What would you add? Well, I, I mean, I'll build that in also in the sense of I do think the industry, the marketing research industry has a role to play as well in um, setting guidelines and standards for inclusivity, whether it's race, ethnicity, gender identity, access and ability. And our clients, the brands may not be able to or don't aren't looking forward maybe in that way to do it themselves. And so we need to bring this to them and say it's important and also have solutions on how we're going to have more inclusive sample and participants. So I know, again, as part of the idea council, we're going to be looking at gender and sexual orientation next. And we also are going to be doing research on access and ability. And Tim, I'm definitely going to reach out to, (laughs) to you on that for sure. And we need to approach that research in a different way from what we did on race and ethnicity. But, you know, Tim, you have the facts in terms of the percentage population that you're leaving out by not doing this. And I would say as an industry, we we have a responsibility to our clients and to our participants to help set up the research for success so that we make sure we have the people giving feedback on these products and services that we need to have. Yes, please. I would just add to that, you know, Tim said one in four people have a disability. So what that likely means is that all of us know someone who has a disability. And I think the way at least American culture is headed right now, this is super important to Gen Z and millennials is They want to know that you're treating their friends well. (laughs) So even if they don't identify with having a disability, they want to support brands who support their friends with a disability. And so I think that the rest of the 75% that we're not covering or that we're already covering, they really care about it and will voice that with their money as well. So you talk about the billions of dollars that Tim already addressed from that quarter of the population and then there's a vast majority of the population, especially, you know, under 40, who say, if you show that you care about my disabled mother or my disabled brother or my disabled friend or me, then I want to support that brand. And I will sacrifice the price that I pay, the dollar amount that I'm paying. If, you know, say a product is $10 more or whatever percent more, they're willing to pay that because of what it stands for. So I think just culturally, we're headed in a direction where that business case, that quarter of the population is important, but it's also important to remember that there's a vast majority of the population that cares about and loves people who are in that 25% and want to support a brand that shows that they support those people. Uh, those are all fantastic points. So I want to be conscious of time because I think we can keep peeling this onion for for a while. So you've all mentioned the Idea Council through uh, Insight Association. And my understanding is that there's research that's being conducted or has been conducted about this. Uh, actually, right before this, I, I saw a uh, an email come through from the IA about the Idea Council. So you know, the, the universe is aligning from a timing standpoint for, <laughs> for this conversation. Lila, so I think it's your turn. So trying to keep track of who's, uh, who's talked. Do you want to give us an overview of that work? And then everybody else can chime in so we can d- do a, an explanation of what the, the Idea Council is, what it's done and where it's going. Yeah, absolutely. And Kiana will have a lot to say too, has been working on the analysis. So the Idea Council was formed in 2020 with all the social unrest in the country and with the purpose of having inclusive, diverse, equitable, and providing access in the industry. And there were really two paths. One was for the profession to include diversity and access in the profession and researchers and talent. And the other one was to do research on research to have more inclusive research. And the first phase of that was first a position paper to understand what are all the ways that we're asking about race and ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation today. 
And then we did this really comprehensive study of how we ask race and ethnicity today. We tested 10 different questions based on, you know, all the ways that we saw different companies were asking race and ethnicity across 5,000 people in the United States. It was U.S. centric and it also was panel sample. And we found that people really want some key things. They want the option to have select multiple races and ethnicity. They want to be able to see themselves in the answer choices by having descriptive answer sets, not the short single select that you know many companies are still using. That's a byproduct of old census questions, but the more detailed question and even more detailed than the census question today. So People, you know, don't like other, for example, it's alienating and want to be able to list their race and ethnicity. So lots of great learnings there. And we're working with panel companies to and brands to get those questions integrated into how we ask. And then the next phase is on gender and sexual orientation. And again, we're going to test different ways to ask as there's just a lot of, again, a lot of different ways to ask and confusion about uh, which which gender and sexual orientation, and then the third phase will be on access and ability. So, I'll stop there, Kiana. I know you are really integral and have presenting these been presenting these results a lot. Yeah, it's been a pleasure getting to work with you, Lila. I'm reading the board that's behind you that says questions are the answers, and I feel like that's a lot of what we've experienced with even this first phase of research. It's given us answers, but now we have new questions and want to continue to expand upon that research. So we've actually taken a deep dive into that data and we'll be presenting next Friday to talk about the UX of survey questions and specifically demographic questions and how we can make the respondent experience a priority again. And it's based on the open ends and a lot of the findings that we found in this idea council research. And so I think there will be a lot of phase twos and phase threes of this research. And one of our biggest encouragements as a research team is, hey, market research industry, will you all get involved and be innovative with us and conduct this research too? Because, you know, as we've talked about during this time together, it's on all of us as an industry to make sure that we're leading in this space. So some of the questions that we've started to explore is, well, what would this look like in a global survey? There are some countries that don't really talk about race or identify people that way. How could we address that question in our surveys? Um, What if we stopped asking (laughs) race and ethnicity? And Lila talked about this earlier on in the survey that she said she conducted where they didn't ask about race and ethnicity, but then in the end saw that there was diversity as a byproduct of the types of questions and um, qualifiers for people taking the survey. So I think there's a lot of innovation and opportunity here. I'm really excited for what the Idea Council is doing. I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, but please come join. (laughs) If you're excited about this and this conversation gets you excited, come be a part of this because I think Lila and I have both found that this is a second full-time job (laughs) to sift through the findings and talk about the research. And that's a great thing, but let's all get involved. As we're talking about here, diversity and thought is important in this research and in deciding what the impact is. Great. Tim, would you add anything to that? So I'm not a part of the Idea Council yet. Yet. (laughs) (laughs) Plug there. Hint, hint. But one thing that really bothers me is that we base questions on the census. Think about how wrong and racist the census has been in its history and how it's only every 10 years. And I would love for there to be a different standard that we hold ourselves up to. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. And with race and ethnicity and sexuality, and I would love to have a a template for best practices and idea council approval of the surveys that go out that are accessible as well. And I will go on record and volunteer that in the next round of grit in the fall, 
let's get together and find, you know, Grit's already this humongous beast speaking, you know. <laughs> so I don't have too many questions, but I think there is room to add a couple questions to get the the perspective from the industry, from the buyer side and the, uh, and the supplier side on this as well. So we'll circle back around. Now, it does bring up another uh, and I want to be conscious of time, uh, so this may be opening up a can of worms we don't have time to fully dig into. In the era of one-to-one marketing, you know, kind of P&G's stated you know, goal of to have a one-to-one relationship with every person in real time uh, on the planet, knowing all of those demographic components and having that deep knowledge of the, of the individual respondent made sense. But we are moving into a world now, because of the decline of the cookie, because of GDPR, you know, et cetera, et cetera, where there are significant barriers of building that one. If I'm a brand, let's use P&G as an example, right? Having that, that one-to-one relationship. So therefore having the data that I can map is becoming significantly more challenging and potentially even impossible under the current architecture of the web, uh, the current environment uh, from a legislative perspective, even the massively changing, almost politically motivated of web users, right? There's a lot of fragmentation that is occurring around data and around understanding who consumers and around platforms, et cetera, et cetera. So if that is true, and I do believe that, that it is, it leads me to the question of the argument, and you, you mentioned this, Kiona, Maybe we don't even need to ask these questions at all because they may not be actionable, truly, right? We may not be able to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time. So we may not be able to tailor the advertising to everybody individually at the same level that we were even a year or so ago because there are simply technological barriers. In some ways, we're going back to targeted advertising in magazines or, you know, it's all these walled gardens. You know, we're, we're basically getting back to kind of billboards <laughs> in, in these, these different properties that we think have the populations we want to target. So if that is the case, in this hypothetical question, do we get to a place potentially where some of this just could be, it's the right thing to do, but pragmatically, it doesn't matter because we can't use the data from a marketing perspective to power our clients' product development. And then how do we juggle those two things? How do we juggle it's right to make sure that we are engaging with everybody, but some of these questions just may go away because they don't matter anymore. Just a thought. So uh, for, well, this is your chance to say, Lenny, that's stupid, that's crazy. What are you talking about? That's just insane or if you have a thought on what that future may look like. So, Kiona, you were nodding through that. You looked the most thoughtful uh, as I was <laughs> going off on that. So I'm going to pick on you first. Well, I'm intrigued by it. There's a book called The Four, and I believe maybe the author is working on another version, adding a fifth brand in there. But The Four talks about Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. And it kind of gets back to what I was talking about towards the beginning is that if there's this equitable exchange of information between the company and the consumer, then the consumer is more willing to let you have information about them because they are then getting something in return. And I heard at a conference recently that Facebook, now Meta, I think based on the information that they collect about people, the way they post, the types of posts that they like, the way they interact just in Facebook or meta products, they've got like these different segments. I think like some people are called a dog and a cat and like there's these different (laughs) personas that people fall into. And I think about, you know, Google and Apple where people are willing to connect all of their Apple products (laughs) and give this plethora of information to this company because of what they're getting in return. And so I think what you're talking about scares me because there's this place where right now there's four companies that do that really, really well. And I do not like the idea of being monopolized. (laughs) However, 
if other companies can follow that template, perhaps we end up in a really beautiful place of companies getting to know their consumers deeply and being able to offer personalization that it seems, and I know we've talked a lot about Gen Z and millennials and age diversity is a whole other conversation. So they're not the only focus, but we are headed in a direction where that personalization is really desired. And so if we can follow those templates and make sure that that exchange of information is equitable and mutual, I do think it could be a beautiful thing. But right now it scares me because there's four companies that are far, far ahead in doing that. And um, the rest are starting to fall behind, as you talked about, and going back <laughs> to the old way of marketing. So yeah, I'm, I want to remain hopeful <laughs> because I'm a researcher and I think we can do it. But um, yeah, I'm a little scared too. <laughs> Right there with you. Again, as soon as I wish our audience could see us as we're, you know, because I was, I think my, I heard my neck nodding so much <laughs> like you were talking. All right, Lila, any thoughts on uh, on this brave new world we may be heading into and, and what that may mean for this overall topic? Yeah, I mean, I still think I don't want to lose sight of part of the purpose of thinking about this is to make sure that we have inclusive voices on in our research. And so we need to ask some of these questions to make sure that big range of people are represented in the feedback. And also the way that people identify and want to identify is changing. And so it, that sort of breaks open, you know, a bunch of other ways we might think about asking questions that go beyond sort of our core standard demographics. And especially with younger generations, again, thinking about Gen Z, they don't want to be pigeonholed in certain ways and want to be able to identify situationally based on what their needs are. So that gets kind of to my third point, which is for product development, for brands, focusing on the need that you're solving for and communicating that need and you will attract the right people to your product if you focus on solving for that that need and communicating what you're solving for. So it's my two cents. Thank you. A, a, a more pragmatic perspective than maybe where uh, where Kim and I were going of like, holy crap, wait, what if that happens? So thank you for <laughs> bringing us back a little bit to the fundamentals. Uh, to- Range us back in. <laughs> <laughs> right. We were getting out there, weren't we? Or at least I was. Tim, thoughts from from you? I'm in the middle of the road here. I think that it's very important to have these questions to make sure that we are as equitable as possible. But we also need to get the buy-in from the survey respondent who I think should be rewarded by the questions that they answer, not the surveys that they complete. And with the data points that they're willing to give you with their consent. So I see it, if, if you're familiar with the Brave browser, you can you, you can get basic attention tokens by opting into advertising. And at any point you can withdraw your consent. You can completely not see ads if you don't want to. I know Lenny has an uh, interest in a company called Veriglyph, which is pretty, I think, on the right direction there with consent and making sure that it carries across the web to where, you know, on the blockchain, you know, you you say what you're going to give. And at the end, of, when the brand is analyzing, I think that if of the ones who said that they would give their consent to age, gender, sexual orientation, and, you know, that can change situationally, right, Lila? And so you vote with your dollars and... I think that we put make the respondents an equal part by paying for every piece of data, not just the outcome of the survey. Yeah, now my neck really hurts because I'm really nodding. So, yes, thank you. That's, yeah, I appreciate the plug. Um, <laughs> we'll have a whole other cup. And that does inform my perspective on this as well, right? It goes back to the idea that fundamentally, I think we have a problem with how we engage with consumers and we have to find a new way to do that. And anyway, I won't get into the very glove stuff. There will come a time where we'll, we'll talk more about that. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right, guys, we could go on for a lot longer, but 
the, I think we're at the, the top of our time. Any final thoughts? Where can people reach you? Any plugs you want to give that don't involve one of my business interests, uh, Tim? <laughs> and we'll just go go back around and start. Lila, final things that you want to just make sure our listeners hear. Yeah. Well, thanks, Lenny, for having me and this group on the podcast. It's really fun talking to you and Kiana and Tim. And final plug I'd have is, yeah, if you want to get involved, contact me in terms of, you know, how we're asking these questions today. And it, I totally agree with Kiana. This is a massive group industry effort. And I've been amazed at the level of enthusiasm and energy around this. And I feel like there's a lot of momentum and the time is right. So thanks for having this conversation, Lenny. Thank you. Tim? Yeah, thanks, Lenny. I appreciate it. And thank you to all the listeners who are willing to look in the mirror and see a potential better way to conduct business, more equitable and accessible. Question Pro X Day is June 6th. Make sure you register online. Anything accessible, you can reach me directly. Any questions you have about representation of the disabled community, please reach out directly to me. I will leave you with one quote from Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So let's all do better. Thanks for having me. Uh, That's a good one. All right. Kiona, final word is yours. Man, you should have ended with Tim. Uh, (laughs) 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 You just scramble and find a quote really quick. No, thanks for having me, Lenny. It's been great chatting with you, Lila and Tim. I'm excited. I think, one, if anyone wants to reach me, my name is Kiana, K-E-Y-O-N-A. I'm at Accelerate right now, so AccelerateSG.com. Also through the Idea Council, I would just encourage us to be innovative and open-minded. I think that right now we're in a space where we've done things a certain way for so long. And so I would love to just see where open-mindedness takes us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thank all all three of you. This was really a, a wonderful conversation. We will reconvene at some point and continue it. And thanks for the work that you're doing. Uh, Many thanks to our producer, Karen Lynch, our editor, James Carlisle, and our episode sponsor, Innovate MR. Thank you for your time, for our listeners. Appreciate you spending it with us. And that's it until the next edition of the Green Book Podcast. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.